Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy, the first chapter of 1 Timothy. We're going to take uh, some time now and study from God's Word. We invite you to open your Bibles with us together. Children love to ask questions, and I think uh, we probably, if you've you've had all children in your home for any time at all, maybe as a parent or as a grandparent, you sometimes recognize that sometimes their questions can get rather annoying, uh, especially if they just keep coming back and back with the same question. Uh, And there are some questions that are that way. Uh, Are we there yet? Uh, And uh, and you have to deal with that. It might be one of the most daunting questions that uh, children ask uh, is the question, why? Um, and the time when this question comes, I think at least when we think about children, uh, it comes when sometimes when you ask them to do something in response to a command. You know, you need to pick up your toys. Well, why? You know, you need to eat your vegetables. Well, why? And sometimes we recognize that the why question is just an attempt to try to keep from doing maybe what uh, you told them to do. But it's not an illegitimate question, is it? If someone ask you to do something or even command you to do something to ask why is a legitimate question. It would seem in terms of children, at least that's uh, my assessment of it, is that the the why question is sort of an indication of a maturing child because there was a time maybe before they could speak or before they could recognize uh, that there might be a reason behind it. They didn't ask that question and so uh, when they begin asking the question why, they're beginning to recognize that when someone tells you to do something, there ought to be a reason behind it. There ought to be something that's the foundation of it, and the subsequent obedience then that's expected ought to have a purpose. And so they question about what that purpose is. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a parent or been a parent like me, then sometimes when that question comes around enough, your final answer is, because I told you so. <laughs> uh, and that question is more for our benefit, I suppose, than for theirs. I've found very, little, very few children that actually accepted that answer. Uh, at least for very long, but uh, that again is a legitimate answer from the standpoint of authority. It's not a bad answer. It certainly focuses on a reason why individuals ought to do things that they're told to do if they're in that relationship of authority. Children ought to obey their parents, and we ought to obey God. And so if we ask the question, why should we obey God? If God says, because I told you so, that's not a bad answer. Certainly we should obey him because he told us so. But what's fascinating to me about the scriptures as we talk about the aspect of command is that God goes beyond that for us. That God's very willing to answer the why question when it comes to his commandments or laws beyond this aspect of simple recognition of his authority. What is the purpose of God's commandments? Why does God tell us to do something? I believe there are many in religion today who fail to understand the, the, the proper answer to that question or the biblical answer to that question because they fail to understand the relationship that God places us in in relationship to law. Erring on both sides of the truth, there are those who believe and teach that their justification from sin comes from strict law keeping, that they will be saved because they do more things right than they do things that are wrong, and if they're good enough, God will save them. There are others who teach that because grace is involved and at the very center of our salvation before God, then law means nothing. That it doesn't matter whether or not you keep the law, that law keeping is actually in their view contrary to the commandments of God. And therefore they disdain or at least they minimize the aspect of whether or not a person should actually obey God and may never come around to the why question. 
But what does the Bible say about that? How does the Bible answer the question concerning the purpose of God's commandments? Are God's commandments designed only to elicit strict obedience? Is what God wants from us just to get us to do certain things? And as long as we get us to do certain things, then He's happy with us, and that's ultimately what will get us to heaven. Or is there more to it than that? Does God really desire and design that by obeying God's commandments, there will be more for us, and certainly there will be more that pleases Him? So, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I believe the Apostle Paul gives us an answer to this. And it might not be that this is the most comprehensive answer we could find. There are other passages that that we can consider that deal with the aspect of commandment keeping and the purpose of commandment keeping. But certainly the Apostle addresses it here. In verse 1, or in verse 3, he says to Timothy, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, which some, having swayed, strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now last week we talked about Paul's admonition to Timothy that as he was ministering at Ephesus, that he was to charge those who were teaching that they teach no other doctrine. And what the significance of that was, not only to Timothy's mission, but as well even as it might apply to us today. But what Paul says following that is very, I think, instructive to the answer of our question that we posed. And that is, what is the purpose of commandment? Because what Paul says here is that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. The word purpose here is a word telos in the Greek language, which means the aspect of aim or sense of aim. It's the idea of a goal. The word is used sometimes to talk about the end of something, so that this is something that becomes completed then has a purpose or establishes its purpose. It's also the aspect used to describe this aspect of result, something that comes at the end of something when it is completed. It is a word that one would use to answer the why question, that why is this to be done? Well, this is the purpose why it is to be done. And that's the way Paul's using it in this context, I believe. When he says that the purpose of the commandment is love. That the end of the commandment of God, the result of the commandment of God, the aim of the commandment of God, is love. Now, others, when we think about this, we have to ask the question, well, what commandment is he talking about? He uses the word commandment, a very common word, particularly in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, to describe this aspect of what God has said that individual is to obey. But what commandment is he talking about? Some contend that what he's talking that in the context itself, the references to the order that Timothy had been given by Paul to tell people to not teach any other doctrine. That that's the commandment that he's talking about, and he goes along to say, "Now this is the reason why I'm commanding you to do this." Well, that makes sense to me, and certainly it fits the context. Others contend that Paul is talking about specifically the commandments of the law of Moses. That by using the term commandment, it was so prevalent in the Old Testament that that's very possibly what Paul's referencing to, particularly when he goes on in the next context and talks about this aspect of the law and then specifically references things that have to do, laws themselves that have to do with even the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. Yet Paul's introducing his statement about the law by using the term commandment. 
Certainly Paul earlier mentioned this aspect of the false teacher's fascination with genealogies and they're spending their time on myths and genealogies. And that could very easily be a reference to the Judaizing teachers who spent their time trying to trace back their genealogy to Abraham and they used that as the basis from which they would speak about their relationship to God. And what Paul says is that's all useless. It just does nothing but cause people to argue with one another. And so he tells Timothy, don't do that, but rather teach sound doctrine. Others view that Paul's reference may be more general. Then when he uses the word commandment, that he's using a word that would have general connotation to it, just as he does when he uses the term law in this context and maybe in other contexts as well. That he's saying that every commandment has this purpose, every law of God has this purpose. And again, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide which you think is the best answer to the question of what commandment is specifically being spoken about. I'm convinced that the end result of Paul's teaching is the same, whether we take it to be the immediate context or whether we take it to mean the law of Moses that God delivered or whether we take it to mean any law that God commands. That the aspect that God would command me to do something and would give me a law to keep has purpose. It has reason behind it. It's not arbitrary. It's not spurious. There's a reason why God would command me to do something. And that when I look at the Scriptures, not only this Scripture but other places, that I could certainly come to the conclusion, rightfully so, that the purpose of the commandment, whatever commandment it is of God, the purpose of the commandment is love. Now, does that answer surprise you? That the purpose of God's commandments is love. If I ask you to fill in, ask you to fill in the blank, or ask other people themselves to fill in the blank, the purpose of the laws of God contained in Scripture is blank. How'd you fill in that Scripture, that that blank? Some might say obedience. Some might say submission. Others might say salvation. But who would say love? And yet, that's what Paul says. Sometimes we think of love. And law as being sort of mutually exclusive, at least we see them as being separate from one another. The word love here is the common word, New Testament word, Greek word, agape. So the word itself indicates not just this aspect of affection, not just the aspect of emotion, though it includes emotion, but it is a more powerful word and certainly a deeper reaching word because it means this aspect of self-surrender. It's not a word that's rooted in reciprocal affection. Agape love is not love that, that, that is responsive to the love of someone else. It's not based upon a, a, a relationship of affection, such as being a brother or a family member. Agape love is the kind of love God commands you to have for your enemy. The kind of love that comes from the standpoint of looking at what Jesus God did for us on the cross. It is a love that is certainly oriented and defined by self-sacrifice, what is doing what is best for the other person. We know how important love is, don't we? And certainly we understand that when God uses this term over and over again in the New Testament and He relates it to Himself and to Christ, He's talking about something that's absolutely fundamental to our relationship to Him and to one another. I want to notice something here, though, I think that even makes it more personal, at least from the standpoint of its relation, love's relationship to law, and that is in this context, love as being the purpose of the law, is contrasted with what's going on in Ephesus or what Paul believes is going on in Ephesus that he's warning him about. And that is that there are those who are spending their time on things that are useless and all this useless wrangling and genealogies and all it does is causes disputes. So if I look at the context, I recognize that love as the purpose of law keeping is presented as that which is opposite or contrasted with the disputes 
that, that comes about when people give heed to fables and genealogies and false gospels. The word translated as disputes means questions or inquiries. It's a word that literally means to ask question after question after question. It denotes not just the question itself, but that the focus itself is on the question. In Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Paul said this, Avoid foolish disputes, and there's that word again, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And what Paul's warning against is this aspect of the use of the Word of God, even the commandments of God, to engender discussions about questions and never getting around to really understanding what it's all about. You ever seen that happen? Where people begin to discuss things and maybe discuss even the text of the Bible, discuss a particular verse, or look at what God would have them to do, and they spend all their time studying it and discussing it and debating it and defending it and never get around to obeying it. They never get around to understanding why God would tell them to do this or why this is important to their godly character or even their salvation. They simply dispute over it. Now I say that not only recognize that that goes on among us, sometimes we do that almost in an unconscious way when we're trying to arrive at the proper understanding of a scripture. But also to understand that what Paul contrasts that particular activity with is love. That the commandment of God is to produce love, not questions and disputes. It's not designed to divide us. It's not designed to set us against one another. It is designed to bring us together. It is designed to cause us to love one another more and to love God more. Not just the opposite of that. Now understanding that helps us to recognize that love and law keeping are not mutually exclusive, are they? It's an important question to decide whether or not we see them in the Scriptures properly defined as that which is mutually exclusive or disconnected. If one decides to go the pathway of love, does that mean he leaves behind the importance of law-keeping? If a person decides they're going to keep the law and they're going to do what God wants them to do, does that mean they're going to give up this aspect of developing love in their life? And the answer that Paul would give to that in this simple statement of 1 Timothy 1.5 is no. The fact the commandment is given for the purpose of creating love. Now, is that new in terms of biblical understanding, in terms of revelation of God? The Old Testament saints understood that God's words connected law and love, that God expected a commitment to His law, that they would do everything God had given them to do. Yet, how does God voice this commitment that He wants? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 is an important uh, illustration of that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now, when Jesus is asked what the most important commandment, He quotes this. This is a commandment. Yet, what is it a commandment about? What is the focus of the commandment? The commandment is to love God. And Jesus follows up with that and says, another one like that is loving your... Your, your, your neighbor as yourself. So love is at the very heart of law keeping. And so, and so much so that loving and obeying were not optional, but they were inseparable one from another, even in Old Testament Scripture. But the New Testament certainly connects law and love. It certainly helps us to understand that God doesn't minimize or exclude obedience because He tells us to love one another or because He shows us love for one another. Love, in fact, cannot be claimed for God or for one another apart from a willingness to keep the commandments of God. Jesus said this over and over again. Twice in John chapter 14, He told His disciples, If you love Me, keep My commandments. He who has My commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves Me. 
And there's a direct relationship between the love that God desires from, from us and the requirements of the law of God, even from the standpoint of the love we have for one another. In 1 John chapter 5, John says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If I understand that passage, simply what Jesus, John is telling me is that if someone claims to love me, then they need to keep God's commandments. That they can't claim to love, I can't claim to love my brother unless I'm willing to obey what God tells me. Now, that has a lot of ramifications to it, doesn't it? From the standpoint of how I would treat my wife in the marriage relationship, how I would treat my employer or my employee in a relationship of work. Because God deals with all of those things. He, proves, he has commandments that directly relate to each of those relationships. And when I, if I would show a love for someone in that relationship, then the way to do it is to keep God's law concerning that relationship. So love and law keeping are not disconnected. In fact, one produces the other. And that's precisely what Paul says. Now, what I want to understand as we go back to the text is that that would be enough, wouldn't it? If we were to understand, as much as we could understand, that keeping the laws of God is the avenue or the pathway to love, that would be enough to cause us to want to do what God would have us to say. Who does not want more love? Who doesn't believe the world needs more love? Who doesn't understand the fundamental place of love and relationships and love for one another and that we have to love God? Anyone who has a desire to serve God would recognize that love is at the very heart of that. And if we need anything... We need more love. So if we understood that love is the reason or a purpose for law, we wouldn't turn away from law. We would be driven toward obedience to God's Word. So that would be enough. But Paul doesn't stop there. When he's telling Timothy that the purpose of the law is love, he tells us what kind of love it is. What type of love does God want to produce through obedience to His Word? What type of love does the command of God Produce Well, he says, from a pure heart, in verse 4. That the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. In the fourth chapter of Proverbs, verse 23, the wise man said, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it bring the issues of life. Now, that would suggest we probably understand that he's not talking about the heart pump in our body, that he's talking about our mind. When the Bible uses the term heart, it's talking about the inward person. And what the Bible says, not only in the writings of the wise man in Proverbs, but Jesus' own teaching is that every outward action that is done in obedience to God originates in the heart. In fact, everything that we do originates in our mind. We think about it before we do it. The heart here then is the inner person, the mind, the emotions, the will, the conscience. And so if something is to be later on to be recognized or assessed as being something that is good, if it's going to be something that is truly lovable, then it must first proceed from a pure heart. Because if you poison the fountain, you poison all the water that comes out of the fountain. And if the heart is poisoned by the things of this world, then everything that comes out of that heart is poisoned. God wants us to love and to obey. But if our motivations are impure, if our motivations are hypocritical, if we're doing it because we have ulterior motives, then it's not true obedience. If we do it for ourselves, how can it reflect love for God if what we're doing, simply we're doing because it pleases us? Now you see how that relates? How does, love, how does law produce love? Because law is the only way I can know what pleases God. It's the only way I can know what truly validates my love for God. I can't do what I want and then say, well, that shows how much I love God. If I'm going to show how much I love God, it must be doing through things that God wants. And the only way I can know what God wants is by keeping His commandments. 
So love produces, our commandments produce love. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 9, the Apostle Paul said, Let love be without dissimulation, or some translations say the word hypocrisy. And that's the word that Paul uses here from the standpoint of purity. It means that which is without stain or that which is genuine. And since we have purified our souls in obeying the truth, we need to love one another from a pure heart. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. I think it went too far. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. You see, obeying the truth, saying I want to serve God, repenting my sins and and striving to do what's right sets the stage for understanding what it means to love my brother. It produces the ability to love my brother with a pure heart. But then he says also that we are that the commandment of God produces love from a good conscience. And the term good here is uh, is the original word agathos which points to that which is beneficial or good in a utilitarian sense. That which produces, uh, Vine says, is that, uh, Mathair says, that which it produces satisfaction or pleasure is that which is good. It's an interesting definition of the word good, isn't it? Usually we think about good, we think about morally good, and the word kalos does have the idea of morally good, and sometimes agathos is used in that terminology. But the connotation of this word, more to the point, is that when something is good, it's something that satisfies or brings pleasure. And so, uh, my mother-in-law Norma makes a really good pecan pie. That doesn't mean that's not a moral assessment of her pecan pie. It means that when I eat it, it gives me pleasure. It satisfies. So it's good. And that's what's involved here in the aspect of a good conscience. What is a good conscience? A good conscience is one that gives me pleasure and satisfies me. It does not condemn me. It doesn't make me feel bad. It's that which you see provides for this aspect of what is best for me. Weiss comments on its use here. He says, One can see from the above that a good conscience, therefore, is one that produces a sense of well-being, satisfaction, and pleasure. The guilty conscience is uncomfortable, dissatisfied. A good conscience is one that leads its owner to obey the Word of God. A good conscience is the one that leads someone to obey the Word of God. The word conscience is from an original word that means co- literally means co-knowledge, or it means to know yourself. Thayer says it is joint knowledge. So a person that has a conscience is a person that's looking through their own knowledge at themselves. And the voice within us that either approves us or condemns us according to our knowledge of what is right is our conscience. God given us the ability to make an assessment of ourselves. What we do is not simply instinctual. It is based upon this aspect of a moral assessment. And in practice, the conscience is urging us to act in harmony with the knowledge we have within ourselves of what is right. Now, whether or not the conscience is truly going to lead us in the direction that is truly right depends upon the knowledge that we have. So a conscience itself is not, you see, an infallible guide because we could do something in all good conscience and be doing something that's wrong. Certainly the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was at that time, is an example of that. He murdered Christians with a clear conscience, he tells us, until he learned better. And then when he learned better, he repented and obeyed God's commandments and thereby kept his conscience clean or kept his conscience good. So that what he tells the leaders that he's speaking to later on is that what I'm doing now, I'm doing with a clear conscience based upon what God has revealed to me. It's a function also that depends on whether or not we have seared or calloused our conscience. 
And what can happen here is that a person can at one time have a conscientiousness of a consciousness of what is right and allowing his conscience to follow them, but then he decides not to follow that guide and thereby goes against it. And when he violates his conscience over a period of time, he sears it, as the scriptures talk about, for Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, or calluses it to where it no longer is sensitive to what is right. You see, he suppresses it. And Paul warns against that. Even the aspect of doing something you see that may be right, literally, that you think is wrong. If you have a consciousness this is wrong and you go ahead and do it anyway, you destroy your ability to measure rightness and wrongness later on by the activity of your conscience. So he says, whatever is not of faith is sin. We have to protect the conscience of those you see who are weaker than us. But what Paul's presenting here, I believe, is that the love that's be produced by the commandment of God is love that's produced by doing what is right and living according to our conscience of what's right and wrong. So if you know something's wrong and you're continuing to do that, the law is going to work against you. It's not going to produce a love for God or a love for one another. It's not going to give its ultimate end result of drawing you closer to God. It's going to draw you away from God. It's going to do just the opposite of that. Because it may be very well you're doing things that are right, but you're not doing them with a clear conscience. You may show up to worship God, but your conscience is not clean. It's not good. Therefore, there is no love that flows from that out of a clear conscience. 1 John chapter 3, Paul sa- John says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. That means just, you see, hypocritically or in the outside function. But in deed and truth, genuinely. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. That means to have a clear conscience. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. You see, John recognizes as well, the activity of your conscience is very important to understanding the aim and the purpose of the commandment itself. Paul also says that we are to serve God, that the commandment of God is to produce a love from sincere faith. The faith here then is being described as genuine. The word itself means that which is not fake or that which is not not spurious, but that which is genuine or sincere has that meaning. There are some who pretend to have faith. You see, there are some who say, yes, I believe, but ultimately we recognize they do not believe. When the test is applied, they do not put their trust in God. They claim it, but it's only fake. What is the test of faith? If I were to if I were to try to assess whether or not my faith was sincere, my faith is genuine, how would I know that? I believe from the standpoint of understanding intellectually what God says, and I accept what He says, but that's not, it doesn't end there, does it? It never ends there and never did end there for anyone that God spoke to. Every time God said something to someone and called upon them to have faith in that, there was a test of that faith and whether or not they would actually do it. By faith, Abraham offered his son. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Moses Moses led the people and gave up Egypt. All of those examples, you see, indicate that the true test of genuine faith is obedience. It is law-keeping that validates whether or not I have true faith. And what it produces is love that comes out of a sincere faith when I do what God tells me to do. If I refuse to obey, then my faith is not genuine. And ultimately... I cannot produce faith from a sincere love from a sincere faith. So what we recognize, what we come up with here, I believe, is that what Paul's describing is love-producing, law-keeping. 
Have you ever heard of anything such as love-producing law-keeping? The purpose of the commandment is love. God's answer to the why question is more than just because I said so, though that's a legitimate answer to it. He would have us understand that true obedience to commandments is designed to produce love for Him and to produce love for others. In fact, what we come to understand in a deeper look is that God's commandments are not a call for arbitrary or meaningless acts of obeisance. God isn't just trying to get us to go through some functions and show up at a certain time and go through some certain things or to say certain words. That He's giving us laws as expression for His love for us. The reason He tells us to do something is because He loves us and He knows what's best for us. So when He tells me, stay with that wife and don't give up on that relationship, stay married and be faithful to her, He's giving me a commandment that's best for me. When he tells young people to wait to marriage till you have sexual relationships, he's not trying. He's not simply setting up a rock, an obstacle or a block there that's going to make you unhappy. He's telling you by keeping the law, you will be able to produce love in your life, and you'll do what's best for yourself and for others. Let me tell you, folks. The activities and the throes of our society prove this over and over and over again. God's law is what is best for us. God's law produces love because it flows from love. And so whether we're talking about the family, the marriage, the worship, the work of the church, the morals of our society, we dare not forget what the purpose of the commandment is. It's rest in the very character of God Himself. That's why it was so important for those teachers in Ephesus and Timothy himself to teach no other doctrine to these folks. Don't go someplace else. Don't get caught up in this other stuff because if really the purpose here is to produce love in these people. Love that comes from a sincere faith. Love that's not hypocritical. Love you see that flows from a pure heart. This is what you want to produce in these people and the only thing that will produce that is the law of God. The doctrine. If you, if you teach some other doctrine you're not going to get the end result. And that's why Paul says it in this context, I believe. That the commandment, the purpose of the commandment is love. His message is the only one that will produce the love that God seeks and that we desire. So don't tell me that you're not going to do what God says you want, He wants you to do because you love somebody else or because God loves you. God would never hold me accountable for this. He wants me, he wants me to be happy. He wants me to do this. I can't be happy and do this. That's dangerous reasoning, folks. It's reasoning that fails to, under, fails to understand the real aspect of what commandments are all about. When I was look, putting this uh, lesson together, sometimes I didn't bring my songbook up here. Uh, I should have, but look at the song we just sang. When I put this lesson together, sometimes I look in the songbook try to find songs that I think sort of express it. And, the, and when I got the end of the sermon, the, the song that came to me was More Love to Jesus. And I thought, I don't know if we know that one or not. And then Terry sang it. <laughs> 142. That second verse is what this is all about, isn't it? I want to draw closer to you. I want to be closer to you. More. I want to love you more. And when I make the decision that I want to love you more, you provide the means whereby that can happen. And I think that this aspect of, of understanding that love is at, the fun, is at the foundation of God's law and commandments to us is very important to understanding of so many other elements of the Scriptures. Sometimes, though, we lose that. Last week we stressed, as Paul does, the importance of teaching no other doctrine, of doctrinal purity. And 
as we even this morning, we talk about strict obedience to God's laws and we did in our Bible class as well. All of that is exactly what the Scripture teaches and God doesn't want to de-emphasize any of that. But we can not overlook the type of love that God desires and what ultimately that obedience is to be all about. The true obedience produces something more than just the activity. The purpose of the commandment of God is to produce love that flows from a pure heart, that seeks and maintains a clear conscience before God and is approved by ourselves in a love that's evidence of a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Anything less than that is not enough. It's not enough. In some of the last writings of the New Testament, and notice the connection here, as we close. In some of the last writings of the New Testament, the close of the first century, the Apostle John received a revelation that contained the messages of God to seven churches in Asia Minor. Specific revelations, specific messages to these congregations. Sometimes we look at this and say, well, what would God say about us? Well, decades later, at least from my counting, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church where Timothy was working the church at Ephesus. And he tells them, the Spirit tells them where they're at. What did he tell them? How did he assess the church at Ephesus that had been given this very commandment by Timothy to teach no other doctrine? He told them they were a laboring church. I've looked your works and you're a laboring church. You're a patient church. In fact, you're, you're, you're so patient that you've been successful in fighting against false doctrine, even putting false apostles on their way and not giving them any heed. Individuals that were willing to fight against the false teaching of Nicolaitans, he says, I hate them and you hate them, and that's good. So here was a church by the Holy Spirit's assession that, uh, 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 assessment had understood the concept of teach no other doctrine and were willing to stand up against doctrinal impurity. But then in the middle of that assessment, the thing we most remember about what the Spirit says about the church at Ephesus, but I have this one thing against you, you have left your first love. You see, it's possible, isn't it? The commandments of God are designed to produce love, but it's possible to be engaged in doctrinal purity and the striving to do everything right and miss out on the very end of the law, and that is love itself. Possible to do that. It's possible to forget why we are where where we are and why we're who we are in the standpoint of what God has done for us. And so when you see Paul when the Spirit says you have you have left your first love, he's, give, he's presenting them a serious charge. This is fundamental. But don't overlook what the Spirit tells the church at Ephesus to do about it. You first, you've lost your first love. What should you do? Well, let's all get in a circle and hold hands. Let's dim the lights. No, he says, repent and do the first works. Works there is obedience. I mean, doing what God's given you to do. He, he says, go back and do what God gave you to do in the very first place. Because the law of God, the commandments of God, produce love. And if you'll get back on track to understanding that you are personally responsible for this, it's not just a job of trying to keep outside the doctrine from coming into us. We have to be actually involved in doing what God wants us to do to have love in our life. If we're not doing that, if all we're doing is guarding against somebody else, sabotaging our relationship to God, we might lose out on love, but as long as we're doing what God gives us to do, and we're visiting the sick, and we're praying, and we're teaching, and we're going out and helping other people, and extending ourselves to other people, we will learn what it means to love, and we'll be loving people.
You see, the commandment of God produces love from a clear conscience, from sincere faith, and from a pure heart. Does your religion please God? If it doesn't express love, it cannot please God. But the kind of love that produces and sustains can only come through obedience to the through obedient faith in the words of God. So if your religion does not put much emphasis on doing what the Bible actually tells you to do or the commandments of God, then your religion cannot please God. Not just because God you're not doing the things God wants you to do, but because God wants you to love. He wants you to understand love and the commandment brings us to that. The end of the commandment is love. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. All this other stuff, these genealogies and these wranglings, mean nothing. Even outside obedience that remains outside means nothing. What avails, what has purpose, what produces, is faith working through love. If you love Him, what will you do? You will obey Him. Will you obey Him this morning? Turn away from your sins and decide of your own will that you will do what's right and repent. That's what Spirit told the church at Ephesus to do. Repent. Confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord with true allegiance to Him. Decide He's the one I will follow. He is my King. He is my Savior. And to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Why? Well, because God told you to but also because the commandments of God produce love. And to be joined myself in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most loving thing I could ever be connected to because God died for you. Will you join Him while we stand and while we sing?